Welcome to Playback, a variety podcast. On today's show, we discuss this year's stacked Best Actress Oscar race and the uncharacteristically thin leading actor race. A little bit later, I'll be talking to director Jeff Nichols about his new film Loving and a whole lot more. So stick around. All right, everyone, I'm back here again with uh, Variety's deputy... Oh, it's the longest title. <laughs> I'll just say you're here with Janelle Riley. Smiling Janelle Riley. I'm here with Smiling Janelle. <laughs> J- Janelle uh, 100% Riley. Oh, I only said it once last week. Let's see how I do this week. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about something specific this week, actually. We're going to talk about the lead Oscar races. Uh, first up, let's talk about the ladies, because lead actress is... Uh, un- insane. Yeah, it's, it's, it's stacked. Insane. It's, it's not just amazing performances. It's huge, huge stars, previous nominees, previous winners. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, at the top, I think it's fair to... Well, first of all, I, I won last week, La La Land. You did, the, yes. the victor at Toronto. And Moonlight didn't even place in the top no. three. That shocked me. That was surprising. Although I am not surprised. I mean, obviously, I'd heard amazing things about Lion, and I saw Queen of Cotway on Saturday night with a SAG crowd, and... The enthusiasm for it. I mean, they were rhapsodic, so I actually was not surprised that that's that one the of Toronto's. those delightful kind of movies. It that, really is. It's really well done. Yeah. Uh, and, it's, and having said that, Lupita Nyong'o will not be in the actress race because the race is insane. Yeah, exactly. And and regarding La La Land, Emma Stone won the Venice Prize for Best Actress. Right. So she is, you know, for I think most of us at the top of the list, right there with her is Natalie Portman, which we talked about Jackie last week. I think those are our two locks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone else, it's just, there's so many great performances. Amy Adams turns in two fantastic performances in movies yep. this year. Um, Ruth Nega is fantastic. Isabel Huppert. And then there's the one people we haven't seen. Annette Benning, Taraji P. Henson, Viola Davis, Marion Cotillard. And it's, you haven't mentioned perennial favorite Meryl Streep. Which is completely possible. I <laughs> yeah. love Florence Foster Jenkins. I mean, she's probably good to go. Yeah. Uh, unless, you know, this category just squeezes someone like her out, which yeah. it could. I, I worry that it could squeeze someone like Ruth out because that is uh, a big it's a quiet well. performance. It's not a big performance like some of these. Just like her co-star Joel Edgerton, they're quiet performances, and sometimes that can be hard to break through. But she's such a discovery this year. Yeah, <clears> truly. She truly me. is. She's, you know, in Preacher as well on TV, doing something completely different. I mean, there is always the possibility, they haven't been seen yet, that Marion Cotillard, Viola Davis, Taraji P. Henson, and Annette Benning aren't good. I would find that hard to believe, but yeah. those are four people that, you know, they're already practically guaranteed a slot. And Annette, in particular, is is one of those that uh, is consistently brought up as overdue. Yeah, I mean, the only person who's more overdue than Annette Benning is Amy Adams. <laughs> now, we've talked about this before. You say yes. that because of the number of nominations, yes. right? Yes, uh, Amy has five. Uh, Annette, I believe, has four. She's been around for, for far longer. Sure. Though. I think uh, there's an argument there, but they're both... They're both going to get their Oscar one day, I think, is oh, fair to say. Um, and, you know, we'll see how good 20th Century Women is. That's going to play at the New York Film Festival. So but, we will know soon. Yeah, we will know but soon. But until then, I am only saying that only two sure things are Emma Stone and Natalie Portman. There you go. And Vi- but did we talk about Viola? Did you bring her up there? I did bring her up. Here's the thing about Viola Davis. Uh, I am hearing, I don't know if this is true or not. She the supporting, might supporting thing isn't going to happen. You don't, Why is that? Uh, I feel confident now that it's going to stay lead. I'll you, just say that. You know the... Are you familiar with the play itself? I am. And I know they've also expanded the role a little bit yes. for her. 
she won the lead Tony the actress that played it previously won it in the featured category so you know you can see that the argument could go either way and the argument for supporting is very clear based on our conversation here it's a tight category in lead Mm -hmm. but I think at the end of the day um I'm expecting that to stay in lead. And why is that? Or do you not want to say? Uh, he has his say. sources. I don't want to say. I, I, I just, we'll see, we'll see. But yeah. I, I just feel pretty good right now that the logic on top of just, you know, chatter well, dictates I mean, look, that lead makes the most sense to me. She's a front runner in the lead category without anyone having seen the performance. So yeah. is maybe she shouldn't move, you know? And just as far as optics are concerned, I think it would be a shame to quote unquote demote the the woman of color mm-hmm. out of this race to to into the supporting category um you know if it made room for ruth then that's one thing if it made room for taraji p henson that's one thing but if you know if it's the one woman of color that had a shot at a lead nomination and she was pushed to supporting i think it would kind of be a shame and but i mean people optics. do it all the time i mean let's be honest alicia vikander won last year people for do it all the time but th- they don't have the optics of you know diversity mm-hmm. you know flocking around it so if the performance is as good as i'm hearing and it probably is because she's viola davis i think she'll be fine in either category and i've heard that denzel is fantastic as well opposite her uh he is in the much softer yes lead (laughs) we need some men the story of my life we need men (laughs) (laughs) it's 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 uncharacteristically thin over there i just there is no one who is a sure thing at this point there's a lot of you know good performances casey affleck feels strong but it's it's in a in a Darker, yeah. Also, a very subtle performance. A very subtle yeah. performance, yes. Also, um, I don't know if Casey Affleck is going to play the Oscars game. Well, so to speak, I don't think he would. I mean, he'll probably do the 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 usual regular stuff, mm-hmm. but like that above and beyond territory that you need sometimes if you're on the fringe. I don't see him wanting to do that. I mean, I think Casey Affleck and probably Ryan Gosling are, and maybe even Tom Hanks, which is crazy to me because I liked Sully. Tom Hanks is excellent as always. The man could not get nominated for Captain Phillips, which was one of the best performances I've seen in the last 10 years. But he might get in this year for Sully because it is a really weak category. I was going to make that specific yeah. point. And he's excellent. I mean, he's Tom Hanks. He's, he's very good. He's good. I mean, he's... It's it's also a quiet performance, by the way, mm-hmm. because the performance is all about this guy who's very controlled, very kind of, just like, you know, when he landed the plane, he was very controlled, very on top of it, very just hey, kind hey, of no spoilers centered. here. Oh, yeah, I right. don't need to know he lands the plane. <laughs> uh, I do think, though, that Tom Hanks' performance is, is pretty fantastic. He's one of those actors who does so much with his eyes, mm-hmm. without speaking, and he does get a couple great scenes in Sully that you know could could be that clip moment so yeah. i'm not saying that he would not deserve an oscar nomination i think he's fantastic it's just sort of indicative of of we don't have anything in this category right. yet and by the way that movie is making its best case for itself it's exactly. doing well in the box office and it's... people love it i cannot tell you how many people who live across the country that like are regularly sending me texts asking if i've seen Sully, and they think it's like the best movie of the year the movie is landing if yep. you will Oh, God, please edit that out. For your no, own no, no, sake, I'm, I'm begging stays, you. Stays, I threw uh, Matthew McConaughey in there. This is obviously yes. a movie that we haven't seen yet, but uh, he looks like he's having a lot of fun in gold. I Stephen love the Stephen Gagan's movie. And, you know, I think people wouldn't mind seeing him back on the circuit, frankly. I mean, he was very much on the circuit for Dallas Buyers Club and, and hard to, to miss. And regarding that above mm-hmm. and beyond stuff, you know, was doing everything. And it paid off. Uh, this movie comes in December, and we'll see if it's a contender 
otherwise, but just for his performance, he looks like he's having a, a blast. So. Yeah, I was really charmed by the trailer. Uh, much like Michael Keaton, you know, he starred in the two Best Picture winners of the last two years. Um, he's back in a lead role as Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, who was not a very nice person, as yeah. it turns out. I was sort of shocked to learn just how much he screwed the McDonald's brothers. Out really? Of their you never knew the story? I really did. Oh, yeah. yeah it's a- I am very busy with The Bachelor. Okay. I have a lot to You're out watch. there hashtagging The Bachelor all the time. I can about things that really happened. <laughs> well, uh, we'll see about that movie. I don't, I don't know that that's going to be much of a player. but um, I don't know if the movie is, but I wouldn't underestimate Keaton. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I love the man. I think he deserved a win for Birdman. And, you know, there's going to be that residual goodwill when he's yeah. back in the race. Well, that's what I, th- I thought. If he didn't win for Birdman, he'll win for Spotlight because of all that goodwill. And then they didn't even nominate him. Yeah. Well, that was tough, though. It's like, do you go supporting? Do you go lead? Uh, the two performances that have been seen, I am a big fan of Miles Teller and Bleed for this. Mm-hmm. I think he's great. I actually think Aaron Eckhart is pretty close to a lock for supporting actor in that movie. Um, Miles, who knows? Uh,. You know, Miles is. You talk about playing the game. Mm-hmm. Like, how, would he play the game? You know, per se, would he? I did a lot with him for Whiplash yeah. when it was out, and he can be very. Char- I mean, you know, uh, Miles t- t- Miles Teller. Um, he just he doesn't really have a filter, and in a way, I kind of admire that. Mm-hmm. And he can be very charming in front of audiences, and the performance is really great. Uh, will people see the movie? I don't know. So it's a real crowd pleaser, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, how did it do in Toronto? Did you see it there? No, I saw it before Toronto, and so I don't really So you didn't know. see it with the crowd there? Because yeah. I was very curious how it was going to play. I thought in Telluride it sort of got a little lost. Oh, really? Just because of the that first night. It was Moonlight, Sully, oh, wow. Casey Affleck's tribute along with Manchester, Bleed for This. It was like there was four or five things on top of each other. that people, And I think Bleed for This was the one that suffered. Now, I have not seen Hacksaw Ridge. Mm-hmm. But I'm hearing good things about Andrew Garfield, yeah. who's also appearing in Silence, maybe, this year. I think Silence is definitely coming out this year, but we'll, we'll see. I don't, I don't know what's going on with the holdup on presenting materials and mm-hmm. whatnot, but... Uh, you know, regarding Hacksaw, I do think he's 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 very good in Hacksaw. I think that if Silence does come out, that ha- his performance in Hacksaw could kind of just add to that narrative. Right. It's like the Michael Douglas Wall Street Fatal Attraction year. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but it's like how, at the same time, like maybe the category placement shakes out differently in Silence. Like if oh, Liam true. Neeson is the lead of Silence, I think that's game over. I am um, <laughs> going to campaign Liam Neeson for his work in A Monster Calls as the tree. Okay. That's all you? <laughs> so um, Ryan Gosling's performance has been seen, has been liked. And yet, I think those kinds of roles suffer. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Kind of He's also not able to campaign. He's uh, shooting Blade Runner yeah. until at least November. Yeah, that's tough. But people love the movie. Uh, yeah, if they if they love it, it's kind of one of those things that depends on how, mm-hmm. how deep they fall in love with it and if he kind of comes along for the ride. And I don't think he's – it's not that I don't think he's great on his own. It's just – those kind of performances in these kinds of movies can be a little thankless. Yeah. And Emma Stone just owns the movie so much. It, well, it kind of is her story. Yeah. I mean, it's it's presented in advertisements as sort of both their stories, but I, I do sort of feel it, it tips in her favor. I um, think Nate Parker deserves to be in this race. I do too. I think he's amazing in Birth of a Nation. I think his, I would rather see him nominated as actor than director, to be honest. And I think his direction is very good. Yeah. But I was really, really taken by his performance. I've been a fan of his for a long time. Uh, as far as Beyond the Lights, 
He was great in that. He was great in arbitrage. And way back in Great Debaters when everyone first discovered him. But uh, I do think that them getting... Not that it was some master stroke, but I do think that this uh, controversy happening when it did gives it time to recover. Mm -hmm. It either will or it won't. I mean, look, if the movie comes out and it just bombs at the box office and the audience is rejected or boycotts become the story... How well, do you think it's going to do at the box office? I don't know. I really have no idea. I don't know. I'm yeah. never good with guessing box office, but I, I don't think that it's going to be a movie that uh, a lot of people are interested in yeah. seeing. I'm terrible at guessing box office. Um, Witness Blair Witch this weekend. I've How did seen it do? I don't know. 10 million, I think, at the most. It's supposed to do better than that? It's supposed to like double that. Oh, wow. And let's be frank. I mean, there have been some pretty lousy horror films that come out and do triple that. This was actually supposed to be a good movie. Yeah. With a built-in audience and, you know, I mean, I guess 10 million isn't bad. It was a small budget, but I know it's not what they are expecting. Right. Uh, we also don't know about Brad Pitt and Allied. Yeah, I think it could be a smaller performance than people expect. I think Marion might be the I'm story there. I'm hearing that. I'm hearing uh, Brad might actually be supporting. But after the events of this week, gosh, the tabloid press are going to yeah. have a field day with all of that. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know how much campaigning he'll want to do when his yeah. divorce is being played out yeah. in the public. yeah. Vigo Mortensen we talked about a few weeks ago. Love it. Love it. I think he's worth considering in all I of absolutely do. Well, you know, he and Joel Edgerton have... Well, actually, I take that back. Vigo Mortensen's performance is a little flashier. Mm-hmm. Joel Edgerton, you know, is constantly doing such wonderful, subtle work. Mm-hmm. Like, could he finally be recognized this year for loving... For such a quiet performance? That's the thing. It's, it's that quiet performance situation again. I think he's great in it. And I think he's been putting out work, great work for a number of years, and he's mm-hmm. been right there... You know, last year with Black Mass, he was fantastic, I thought. And uh, the, mo- the movie just ran out of steam. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, we're the interview portion later here, I'm talking to Jeff Nichols about all of that, the director of Loving. Um, it's strange, too, because the supporting male category seems so much stronger. Yeah. You know, I mean, just off the top of my head, you have Mahershala Ali in Moonlight. I mentioned Aaron Eckhart mm-hmm. in Bleed for This. And... Um, Who's the person I'm just blanking well, on? Liam Neeson, if he is supporting, by the way. You, not for, for Monster Calls. Not okay. for your favorite. <laughs> just, just making sure. Oh, and of uh, Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon. For Nocturnal yeah, Animals. Yeah, yeah and uh, we'll just have to see how some of these turn out. I've got Joseph Gordon Levitt on here, too, but I don't know. I wouldn't Snowden. rule him out. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, we talked about it briefly last week, but uh, you know, the accent didn't bother me after a while, which was surprising. Do you have uh, Jake Gyllenhaal for Nocturnal Animals on that list? No, I do not. Hmm. I do not, but I love Jake. I have Ethan Hawke from Born to be Blue on this list. Sure, he was great. So was Don Cheadle in Miles Ahead. They're both great. I mean, there are like great performances. If people want to dig back, yeah. there's, stuff, there's stuff to look at. That's the question. Will they want to do but that? But we know how much they hate to dig back. They have short memories. Yep. All right, we'll leave it at that. Uh, please stick around. I'll be talking to Jeff Nichols right after this. That's no good here. Richard Perry Loving being a white person and Mildred Jeter being a colored person did unlawfully cohabitate as man and wife. Richard? That ain't right! I believe this is a battle that could go all the way to the Supreme Court. We ain't hurting anybody. 
The state of Virginia will argue that it is unfair to bring children of mixed race into the world. Is there anything you'd like me to say to the Supreme Court justices of the United States? Yeah. Tell the judge I love my wife. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with the writer and director of Loving, Jeff Nichols. How you doing, Jeff? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks for being on here. It's funny. I, I tend to always, obviously uh, do plenty of research and learn where, where the uh, talent I'm interviewing is coming from, but uh, I know your background pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> Went to the same uh, film school uh, together, and I wanted to start there. You know, your time at North Carolina School of the Arts uh there's interesting voices coming out of that school an interesting group of people with chad hardigan and aaron katz and yeah obviously david green and stuff craig zobel craig zobel what do you think about the uh the kind of voice that has emanated from that school well i think it's probably evolving i mean um i haven't been there in a while but when we were there i think you know i guess i got there and they'd only graduated one class by the, my first year. So so they still didn't really know what they were doing, which was great because uh, they just gave us film cameras and um, allowed us to start making mistakes, uh, which is rare, I think, in the film school setting. Um, I know the school's kind of evolved since then, but I think a big part of it is that it's in North Carolina. You know, I know that was a huge part for me and, uh, and probably for David, uh, and probably for Jody Hill too, and and maybe even Craig. But we could walk out the door and be confronted with an environment that was similar to what you know uh, we grew up around, and that's a pretty big deal. I I think back now, like had I gone to New York or or USC or something, one of these kind of you know premier places, I don't know what I would have done. Um, I don't know what kind of storyteller I would have become and i'm really glad you know i had access to to the countryside in the south Mm -hmm. something i've noticed about a lot of the guys that come out of there too is they've maintained that sort of tight-knit group of people they work with sure well i mean you know all ships rise kind of an idea um i think david green was the first one to kind of bust down the door Mm -hmm. for us and and a, a big part of i think becoming a a filmmaker is is believing that it's actually possible. It was for me, at least, because I grew up in Arkansas, completely, you know, removed from any real connection to the industry. And when David made George Washington, it was like, oh, man, like David's one of us. Mm -hmm. Um, As unique as David is, uh, he felt like one, it was kind of somebody from our gang making it. But also beyond that, then, I mean, David's the one that sent me to Brian Kavanaugh Jones at CAA that got my finishing funds for shotgun stories. You know, um, David's the one that wrote Berlin, um, a letter that I think influenced them watching shotgun stories so that it, it got into that festival and had a launching pad. Those are two very probably minor things for David to do in, in his day and in his life, but they had a tremendous impact on me. So you can't, and I know for a fact that, you know, he influenced Jody and Danny McBride and everybody else. So like there is this kind of, you know, um, mental unity that happens, but there's also a very practical side of it of just like, Hey man, make a phone call for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned Berlin there. Uh, 
you have two films this year, one of which started at Berlin this year. Right, Midnight right. Special. And Loving sold in Berlin off Loving of footage. Loving in Berlin, so yeah. Berlin so was good to us this year. You're liking Berlin lately. <laughs> yeah, it was really good to us. Uh, you know, two completely different movies, Midnight and, uh, and Loving. You've right. got a sci-fi film and you've got a historical drama. Uh, that variety, keeping things you know mixed up, is that important to you? Yeah, it kind of is, you know. Um, I think it's really easy to get pigeonholed uh, in this business. And I um, I really liked the idea of those two films coming out in relative time and space of one another, you mm-hmm. know. Um, even though technically Midnight Special could have been released and maybe should have been released the year before. Um, it, it's uh, It makes me happy because... I can find the personal connections to each of these films. I can find the personal motivations for each of these films. But just on the kind of, you know, just bald face of it toward the industry, it's like, wow, well, okay, he's at least not repeating himself, um, even though I think there are a lot of similarities in all these things that I've mm-hmm. made. Um, yeah, that, that feels important to me. But also, I'm five films in now. And for the first time in my career, I don't know what's next. And I... And I feel, though, a freedom in terms of the choices I have access to simply because no one film is going to totally define me anymore. I didn't feel that way with Shotgun Stories and Take Shelter and Mud, Mm -hmm. even Midnight Special to a degree. It was like, this is how people are going to judge me. Now, that's a little bit naive because in this business, you're kind of always judged by the last thing that you did. Regarding Midnight Special, you're experience with a big studio on the movie we talked about this earlier in the year but just want to hear some more about it now yeah. uh you know different vibe obviously than the other projects you've been on and and I'd, lo- I'd love to hear just with a studio like that that is kind of in the muck of uh franchise movies and these kind of big tent poles and, and trying to build these cinematic universes right uh to, to take time for a project like that i thought was extraordinary how did you find it well, you know, Warner Brothers was really, really good to me. Um, but that was also a very specific situation. And I was there kind of during a, a bit of a sea change for that studio. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jeff Robinov was the one that, that greenlit that film. Um, and then he left the studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Greg Silverman, you know, took over. So I was there in a transitional period. Um, but even despite that, um, you know, they, 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 didn't, they didn't mess with me too much mm-hmm. um i think i really you know from my perspective i i just really wanted them to like the film uh, because you want the people that are paying the money for your film and the and the money to release it and picking the distribution plan you just want them to not just be financially invested but you really want them to like the thing you're doing mm-hmm. um you know i definitely think uh you know robinov had a different point of view on it um than maybe Silverman, but mm-hmm. um, but I can't say I was never you know I was never forced to to alter what I wanted to do in any substantial mm-hmm. way. Um, Can I back up? I'm just curious yeah. what you mean by the difference of point of view. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I think I think Robinov, from just the conversations I had had with him, I think he saw it as a little bit potentially a bigger film, mm-hmm. not in terms of cost, but in terms of accessibility to the audience. Mm. I think by the time I was done with it, you know, um, they and, uh, you, you know, it's a big group over there, so I won't even say who, but they kind of saw it as a, a smaller film. You know, I heard a lot of times when they were talking about the release strategy, they were like, you know, don't this is a film you don't want to get caught speeding with, mm-hmm. which, you know, 
the uh, the result of that was you know it just kind of sat in five on five screens for a long time but um and you can judge whether that was a good decision or a bad one but i don't think it was any you know scheme to uh to make the film not succeed quite the opposite actually i I think they thought that was the way the best way to handle it yeah and they don't do stuff like that you know frequently either i think i think sometimes studios get these movies uh and and they're not really outfitted maybe to platform a movie or uh, or what have you so there was a lot of talk you know um at the time about we're really excited we get to work on something like this yeah. you know because we don't work on movies of this scale a lot of times yeah. and so you know I, I think there was uh i think there was some excitement there mm-hmm. uh from 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 the people there and like i said i i really enjoyed them all i, I really like them yeah well loving came to you through martin scorsese right Kind of, kind of, kind of. He was kind of a friend of the project mm-hmm. um, that was the initial phone call that I received, um, which, you know, to the producer's credit, that was a good first phone call, uh, you know, to throw my way because who doesn't want to talk to Martin Scorsese? Yeah. Um, but really it was Colin Firth and Jed Doherty and Nancy Bursky who had made the documentary um, that were the, the the first producers on it. You know, mm-hmm. when, when I came on board, I, I brought... Sarah Green with me, who's my producing partner, um, and Brian Cavanaugh Jones is an executive producer. But uh, it was really Jed and Colin and Nancy that spearheaded um, the the approach to me, and I have to give them a lot of credit too to be to be willing to to work within you know the structure that I dictate. Um, and it's not for everybody, you know, but it's like Sarah's going to you know, have a very heavy hand in producing it because she understands on a very, you know, specific basis how I work day to day. Adam Stone's going to shoot it. Chad Keith's going to be the production designer. Julie Monroe's going to edit it. So back to what I was talking about, about this tight-knit Oh, yeah, you know, it's uh, it just makes sense to me, though, yeah. you know. Um, I mean, maybe there will be some point in my career where I look up and say, hey, I just want to, you know, um, blow this all up and, and have a different experience, but but movies are so hard to make. They're so complex, and there's so many variables at play that I find as much confidence as you can get, you know, around the process, yeah. the better. Yeah, going right into it, exactly. Um, but talk to me about that phone call with Scorsese. I mean, that had to have been... Oh, it was awesome. <laughs> you know, um, I was just pacing around in my backyard talking to him, and I mean, it's the fact that he had seen my films. You know, he'd seen Take Shelter and he'd seen Mud. Um, and he was, you know, mentioning scenes from them. And, and yeah. I mean, this is a man who, you know, shaped our <laughs> our film knowledge. Yeah. Uh, I had two DVDs my junior year. We had a DVD player and no cable connection. One was Fletch and one was Goodfellas. And I watched those movies two so much. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I just remember eating ramen noodles and watching Goodfellas and um, and I just became a student of that film uh, and here this man is speaking about my films it was a surreal moment like I, I was I was on cloud nine for a few days was that the version of Goodfellas where you had to flip the disc in the middle of it because was that yes it was I remember it absolutely was yes I forgot that that's right so whenever, funny right uh, whenever she's she's freaking out at the girlfriend yeah. and she's ringing the doorbell yeah, yeah I remember yeah. having to flip that's the disc that's hilarious over. 
you know, the, the story of the Lovings uh, obviously took place uh, around Richmond, uh, up, or up in that er- in that area, and you, and you filmed on locations up there. And I just yeah. want to hear. I'm always curious about how an environment helps shape and dictate the film, usually for performers. But I'm curious, as a director, what what did being up there in those environments do for you in the process? Well, you know, in this industry especially, it's kind of like where are the tax incentives? You, you know, sure? and like, you know, well, we can shoot that anywhere. You know, mm-hmm. I remember when we were discussing mud. And I was really kind of demanding that it be shot in Arkansas. They're like, well, you know, the Mississippi River runs through Louisiana. And you're like, yeah, it does, but it looks a hell of a lot different. <laughs> and, um, you know, there was just no question that we would need to go to Virginia for this. But, you know, I mean, we went to college in North Carolina. And even the difference between North Carolina and Virginia is there's subtle differences, yeah. um, not just in landscape, but also accent and everything else. Um, the, this is just really important. But but especially for loving because, I mean that courthouse we shot in was the courthouse they were tried in and convicted in, you know that that jail was the jail you know um, that they were in not the interior but the exterior, um, the field where she, he proposes to her is about three minutes from the house they lived in the real house they lived in in hiding the whole time, and I think because Mildred Loving's character was so innately tied. To nature and to place, to really to home, and a big part of that's family. But I think there was also a part of her that just she needed the country, she needed the grass and the nature. Um, I very much identify with that. That that's a thread that kind of runs through all of my films. So I, I became very much attached to her point of view um, in that regard. And so we needed to go to the place that that captivated her mm-hmm. and the funny thing is when we landed and we were in virginia i mean i was there before i started writing doing research and then when we were there in pre-production it's kind of undeniable i mean it's just got a feel to it um that it makes sense that she would be willing to you know endure constant the constant threat of danger just in order to get her family back into the country mm-hmm. what did that do for you like you and adam on visual ideas for you know, we just wanted to make it beautiful. Yeah, I, I have to be honest. Um, which, what does what does that mean? But um, it was really important for us, from a production standpoint, to have enough time to execute these things. This being our fifth film, like we know how it, it works. The question is, was is somebody going to give us enough time and resources to pull it off? You know, mm-hmm. I'm very, very specific on the page about how I want these things to unfold, um, and Adam's very specific about you know how he designs with Michael Roy, our gaffer, the the lighting and everything else. And so we just need to be given the time to execute our ideas fully. And Big Beach, thank goodness, our financiers, they had that confidence in us and, and that confidence in the project. And they gave us that time and they gave us those resources. And so, you know, we really were able to say, you know what? For instance, this scene where he proposes to her in this field, that was going to be the the last shot of the movie as well. We knew that. Um, the, the days that we were scheduled to shoot those, it was overcast. I mean, we still could have shot in those days. And, and in past films, on past budget levels, we would have. But it was so important to us to reorganize that week, probably at a pretty good expense, mm-hmm. um, to be able to put those two days on days that were just really beautiful. Um, that... That's how it. That's how it affected us. It was the style of production and being allowed 
the 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 room and the um, and the ability to just just to get it right. Yeah, Joel Edgerton is a, a known commodity now, but Ruth is a, is a little more of an unknown. Uh, well, she was <laughs> she, she was, was three months ago. <laughs> true, true. Not, not anymore. It's blowing up a bit now. Uh, but but tell me what you were looking for for these two roles. Uh, and, and, right. and I imagine chemistry was a big part of that dynamic. Oddly enough, I didn't I didn't sweat the chemistry too much, yeah. which I know sounds absurd. Um, but you know, I write parts for people. I write parts for Mike Shannon. I write I wrote Mud for Matthew McConaughey. You know, I'm real specific on the page about that. And in this instance, I was writing these parts for Richard and Mildred. I'd been studying this archival footage over and over and over and over in these photographs so much so that I had them in my mind. I had their voices in my mind. So when Ruth came in, she was the first person we auditioned. Uh, Francine Maisler, our casting director, who's the greatest casting director in the world. Ruth was the first person she brought in. I didn't know her work. I didn't know really much about her. She sat down and just started doing the scenes, and it was Mildred. It wasn't until afterward that I started talking to her that she spoke in an Irish accent, and I, I just, which was bizarre, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But um, it didn't matter because she'd already already proven that she was she was Mildred, and it was undeniable. You know, whenever we would go talk to financiers or something and they asked who Ruth Nega was, we just showed them a quick time video of the audition and it was like, well, she's Mildred. <laughs> Take a look. And then, you know, Joel, um, you know, Joel wasn't a foregone conclusion either in terms of financing. It, it was, you know, there were several people that had, had questions about that. And I just kept saying, uh, I look, he's, he's, he's Richard he's he's gonna he's gonna do an amazing job in this part you just have to trust me mm-hmm. and again thanks to Big Beach and Peter Sraff and Mark Turtletop they did you know and they let us make this because you know that's a pretty good sized budget um, for, for those two people you know yeah. and for me and so um, so I have to give a lot of credit to them but you know Joel I'd been watching through Midnight Special handle a Texas uh, dialect something I am pretty serious about and um and he just has that facility he has that gift and i knew we had enough audio of the real richard loving that he would be able to do that same thing you know he would be able to just um absorb that character so that's what i was looking for and then i guess you just know something about the nature of people you know ruth ruth has this quality that's very similar to mildred she She's just very soft-spoken, but she also is a bit of a firebrand. You know, she has this inner strength that's kind of undeniable. And Joel, I mean, it's partly because he's Australian, but everybody wants to be friends with Joel. <laughs> he's just a likable guy. Yeah. And uh, and sure enough, you put those two together, and you can tell they just liked each other. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I, I I knew I I just never I never worried about that part. Uh, you know what's interesting right now is there's a lot of talk of films like this and Birth of a Nation and Hidden Figures coming later this year, uh, diversity making its way to the forefront. Um, what's interesting to me about this movie is it's it, what's it strikes me as as more about an, a marriage equality situation. Uh, sure, it, it becomes a movie about that. And was that thematic something that was mostly at the forefront for you, or kind of more in the background? I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Well, it was absolutely 
at the forefront. I mean, I started writing this thing in 2012, mm -hmm. and that's when the marriage equality issue was really starting to get fought out state by state. Mm -hmm. It was before Oberfell uh, and the Supreme Court decision, um, and I would probably think all of us, you know, the producers included, were looking at this as a direct, you know, as a direct link yeah. to that conversation. And and in that Supreme Court case, meaning Oberfell, I mean, they cited the loving. Uh, v. Virginia several times, um, so it, it wasn't just a, you know, it wasn't just this kind of thematic connection. It was actually like a legal yeah. <laughs> connection to the two things. But what's so fascinating about the Loving story is, um, now that uh, you know, marriage equality legally has been, you know, taken care of, very similar to the way that. Interracial marriages were legally handled by the Loving decision in '67. It doesn't mean that the the social framework is is taken care of. Right, you know? of course. That's when that's when that battle really begins. Is this acceptance now of 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 what is legal? Um, so we knew that 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 issue would always resonate. It's not like oh well the Supreme Court fixed this now. There's no need to tell this. Yeah. Um, what's fascinating, though, is now all of this, um, uh, the, the idea of, of racism in this country is so out front as it should be. It's such an aggressive conversation as it should be um, that the loving story applies to that as well. Um, and their story hasn't changed, but the social dynamic has changed. I think even, you know, the country, the state of the country in May when we played this thing in Cannes, the tenor of the conversation was one thing. And now here it is September, we play the same movie again, but the tenor has changed. Yeah. You know, the shootings in Dallas and Baton Rouge. Um, the conversation is constantly evolving. And what's so important about that and what's so important about the loving story in, in, in reference to it is the lovings just showed the humanity at the center of a very complex, difficult conversation. And we are having, and we need to be having, complex, difficult conversations about race in this country and about equality in general. And the Lovings remain this this constant example of humanity mm -hmm. because they they didn't want to be political figures. They weren't looking for this. And they just truly loved each other. And I think when you get to really divisive topics in our society, if we can if we can force people to just stop and think about the humans at the center of them, we have a chance of actually having a rational conversation. Which is certainly why you're you were drawn to stripping away as much as you have in this film and making it very much a quiet story of, of two people who fell in love and there were ramifications for that. Because I believe that's what they were like. Yeah. You know, um, that wasn't just a calculation on my part in terms of, oh, this is the best way to represent them. When you look at this archival footage, they were such quiet people. Mm -hmm. And they're just specific facts that, and, and, and things that come out of their mouths that that you you know you know they just wished people had left them alone yeah um so you know that uh the, the the tenor of the film needs to be needs to reflect you know that part of their personalities now you said you are at the point now for the first time where you don't know what's next but i feel like that allows me to ask you what would you like to be next do you have any idea that 
is there some area you want to push into that you haven't yet? Is there because it seems like if you don't know what's next, then you have the freedom to maybe figure that out. Well, I'm gonna I'll answer way. it two ways. First, in kind of a bigger kind of macro idea way, and then I'll talk a little bit more specifically. What I really want to do is make a film that enters the zeitgeist. You know, I want to make a film that makes an impression on a lot of people. Uh, and there are a lot of ways to do that. That doesn't necessarily mean making a $100 million film. You know, Loving might do it, in fact. Um, I hope it does. But, but as a kind of end-all goal, that's something that interests me. You know, like Richard Linklater does it a lot. Well, he's done yeah. it twice. With Days and like, remember when Days and Confused came out? I mean, oh, yeah. that that was, and it's not just about people quoting it on the street, but kind of it is. You know, that means that it has permeated our society. It's part of the fabric. It absolutely yeah. is, and it's not something you can calculate. It's not something you can even set out to do. Mm-hmm. But that, to me, would be would be real success. You know, and there are a lot of rewards that come along with that. You know, but um, but to me, that that means you've made a film that has really. It's really gotten to people. Um, so that is kind of a big macro goal is one thing. But since you can't really plan an assault on the zeitgeist, <laughs> you, have to just, you have to just think about the specifics. And what I've done in the past, the way I've tried to make films universal is just actually through specificity. Just make them about my life and make them about how I'm feeling and make the emotions and the characters so specific that they're bound to affect other people. You know, I think we're more, there's more commonality in us than we know. Mm-hmm. Now, all that floral language aside, uh, I'd love to make a big, big budget movie. You know, I'd love to make a big studio film and it might destroy me. It might ruin my career and ruin my life and my marriage. I have no idea. I haven't been through it before, but I want to try. Um, just, you know, just from a purely technical standpoint, I'd love to have access uh, to that level of, of filmmaking. I want to shoot something on 70 millimeter. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want it to be beautiful and big and epic and sweeping. Um, things that I have tried to do in all of these other films on an emotional level, now I want to do on a production level as well. Um, and you're just talking scope and scale, not necessarily these big IPs and being a part of those worlds per se, but just. Yeah, not necessarily. Although, you know, I'm reading the same tea leaves everybody else is reading. Yeah. And, and this is a phase, and we'll get out of it, you know, as a society and as an industry. At some point, we won't be as um, shackled to IP. Um, but right now, I feel like it's very hard in the film business to break through without some connection to it. And, you know, that's why I'm talking to Fox about Alien Nation. Yeah. Um, you know, I have an original idea there that doesn't have much to do with um, the actual Alien Nation you know, movie and, and TV series, but the title fits, and and that's there's real value in that potentially, um, just to get people to listen, you know, just to get people to pay attention. Um, it's not something that I I particularly love. I mean, I'd love to just continue making original films from scratch, and I feel like I'll do that for the rest of my career, but it doesn't mean I won't try my hand at something else in the meantime. Yeah. Well, good luck with that, sir. Thank, thank you for being here today. Yeah, uh, good thank luck you. with loving and, and uh, good luck with alienation. I'm glad you brought it up at the end there because I saw that headline and I was like, oh wow, it's floating around. It's <laughs> it's in its it's in its infancy though. Okay. Long road to hoe on that one. Good luck with it. Thank All you again. Right. Thank you.
Thanks again for listening, everyone. Remember to subscribe and check back next week when we'll be talking to Heller High Water star and the dude himself, Jeff Bridges. You've been listening to Playback at Variety. Thank you.